If you have a Bible, you can open up to Matthew 16. Started this back in December. We're over halfway through it. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray that we would have ears to hear uh, what you have for us and that we'd receive from you, be encouraged by you, that you would grow us into maturity, into the faith, and that today would be a glimpse of what that actually looks like, what it looks like to empty ourselves, to die to ourselves, our wants, our desires, our needs, our preferences, and to put you above all else. So God, help us in this, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we've come to Matthew chapter 16, and we had an option. We could spend four to six weeks in Matthew 16 and handle each one of these dialogues one at a time, or I would blitz through them, and this would all lead to one big theme. So we chose the latter. We are going to blitz through this here this morning, and you're saying, yes, thank you, You're welcome here this morning. And this section of scripture is something I've entitled Kingdom Conversations. As we've looked at the gospel of Matthew, we've noticed that this is all about the kingdom of God. And so far, even in chapter one, where it's just heavy in a genealogy, there's some action that's actually taking place. The story of Mary and Joseph and things happening. And this gospel in this section really slows down in Matthew 16. And we get to eavesdrop in on several conversations that Jesus has with Pharisees, Sadducees, lumped into one conversation, and then an explanation to his disciples, the soon-to-be apostles. And I don't know if any of you have ever been told to like watch a, a movie. I, I remember being in, uh, I think it was middle school or high school, and there was this movie called Amistad. Does anybody remember it, seen it? It was about slaves on, on the ship. And I was told as a teenager, this was a great, awesome, engaging movie. Um, all the movie had in it, as I can remember, and it was good, d- don't get me wrong on this, but was dialogue. All it was, was pretty much talking. And if I wanted to read a book, I would have, but I turned on the subtitles because you had to actually, so I could hear everything and and just make sure I was grasping everything because the action of the movie was in the dialogue. For a teenager, it was incredibly boring, but informative. And there's a lot of other films like that out there. And when we come to this text, uh, it was a bit plain Uh, different than what we're used to with what Jesus has been doing as it just slows down. But the action this morning is in the dialogue for us. This is a text of these kingdom conversations, and Jesus is making a pretty radical break this morning from the system and the ways of the Pharisees and the Sadducees as they get lumped in, as I said, with one another, and he's going to be instituting something brand new, something encouraging, something exciting, and then he's going to drop a massive bomb on those that are following him, something that's going to cause them to want to take a step back. Peter's going to rebuke Jesus. Note to self, don't rebuke Jesus. It's not a good idea. Never say, no, Lord. The answer is, yes, Lord. Jonah found out the hard way on that one as well. And so, here we go. We're going to read these first few verses. It says, and the Pharisees and Sadducees came and to test 
him. Now, if you haven't picked up on this, Matthew is a literary genius. Yes, he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Yes, God is working and moving through him in writing this. But the way in which his mind works and thinks, he's using this terminology, this phrase, he came to test him to draw us back to a certain passage in Matthew chapter 4. Who previously had come to test Jesus? Thank you. You're listening. Absolutely. This is going to pop up again. Here, it's these enemies of Jesus, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. They come to tempt him, to test him. Here's what they say. Show them a sign from heaven. Now, in their ancient thought process, there was the mentality that this Messiah who was to come was going to be that which was like Moses, as we've discussed, and would feed Israel, would have that capacity and ability to rain down bread like Jesus did, or excuse me, like Moses did in the wilderness. And so Jesus has already fed the 5,000. He's already fed the 4,000. And these rumors are going on around Jesus. He threw a heck of a party in John 4, when he turned water into wine, and they were like, this stuff is better than the stuff the dad bought for us, right? Like, this is good. So he throws this party. All of this stuff is going on around him, and they come to Jesus with one focus. We're going to tempt to test him. It's the same idea that we want you to prove if you are the son of God. This is a literary theme that Matthew is using to continue to draw out this idea of if you are the son of God, if you are who you say you are, then do something on your own power, on your own accord to prove it, to show us. And so they say, show us a sign from heaven. And he answered them, when it is evening, you say it'll be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it'll be Stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky. Okay, so he's just using one of their um, ways of telling the weather, the way that they would look at the skies and go, yeah, we know what's coming. Very, very common for them in that day. But you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Then he says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. This brings up a lot of imagery of the Old Testament prophets. This is an accusation that just like Israel who went whoring after other gods and they were an adulteress to God the Father, to Yahweh, that they are acting in that same manner, you seek a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Now, this is pretty key for us this morning, and we're not going to focus on the sign of Jonah. Jesus talked about that back in Matthew chapter 11, and he said, just as Jonah was in the belly of a big fish or a whale or whatever for three days and three nights, I don't know if you saw the article, but some guy got swallowed by a humpback this last week and spit back out. <laughs> yeah, super gnarly. I chuckled. Um, <laughs> it was rad. Anyways, so... So Jonah has this. He's in there three days. Jesus says, so will the Son of Man be in the earth for three days and three nights? And he gave them that sign back then. And he's saying, once again, this is the sign of Jonah. And like Jonah, who went to a people that were pretty hostile, were abusive, were harmful, he takes the good news of repentance, just as Jesus has taken the good news to the Gentiles, as we saw last week. And he's inviting those who were traditionally outside the family of God. And he's saying, come join us. 
Come be a part of the kingdom. Come be a part of what I'm doing. So there's a lot of correlation with Jesus and Jonah, but Jesus is the better than Jonah, just like Jesus is the better than Moses and Elijah and everybody else that we've seen, Abraham and so on and so forth. And so we have this conflict that's happening and this temptation that takes place. And they say, we demand, we want a sign. And Jesus says, I'm not going to give it to you. And this division begins to take place between the religious rulers and the religious elites and Jesus' mindset and mentality. He's looking at this going, I'm not going to work through them at this point. I mean, I'm a Jew. I'm an Israelite. I'm fulfilling what God has for me. But he's now going to focus in on his disciples. In fact, we're going to see the first formation the first acknowledgement of the church and its leaders in this passage of scripture. This is a regime change within Israel from what has been going on. This is action-packed dialogue that we are about to read about. And what Jesus says to his disciples is this, verse 5. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Now here's why. Because Jesus said to them, watch, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Jesus mentions leaven and they think food. They're very human in that mentality. All right. And they're like, oh my goodness, we forgot all the bread. Jesus turns and he says, they begin discussing amongst themselves. We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, you of little faith, why are you discussing amongst yourselves the fact you have no bread? Do not you yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets you gathered? The seven loaves for the 4,000? How many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand? I did not speak about bread. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then, then, light goes off. They understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. This is just a huge, massive distinction because Jesus is going to take these disciples, his followers, and he's going to radically change so much of what they've been taught and understood. In fact, as he's getting ready to head towards Jerusalem, he's going to take their beloved Passover, a tradition they've been celebrating since the days of Moses, and he's going to implement it in a new way about him. He's going to say, this bread, this cup, this blood, this body, this is not about some future lamb that you're celebrating. This is about me. Jesus is instituting something radically different for those that are following him. And in this chapter, you see this distinction being made. And he says, beware of their teaching. Beware of their teaching. Why? Me, you, humanity, we're incredibly influenced by what we take in, right? By what we read, what we study, what we spend time listening to, what we spend time watching. And Jesus is looking at the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they were these religious elite leaders who were both uh, different from one another. In fact, they were enemies, but the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And Jesus is not saying one aspect or another of their teaching is destructive because these two groups had very different teachings. They're actually lumped together in this passage. And what he's telling them is this teaching, their thought process about me, 
who the Messiah is, who I am. You have to understand and read this in context. They came questioning him. Are you the son of God? Show us a sign. He's saying that kind of thinking, that kind of teaching is wrong. Now for you, for me this morning, there's just one side point, side note I want to share with you on this. Teaching and instruction is incredibly valuable. This hour and 15 minutes that we spend here together is instruction for your life. Proverbs continually talks about, take heed to my instruction, O son. I can think back to when I was learning to play basketball. And when you first learn to play basketball, you start out with that just like granny shot. Just know that one? All right, the Brent Berry classic. And then you pick up a ball and you maybe want to play a little more competitively as a 9, 10-year-old and you kind of push the ball into the air and it looks like this motion. Um, It just is horrible and ugly. It wasn't until I went to a camp and somebody taught me to pick up a ball in this hand and this hand and elbow and you go through the motions of what it looks like to shoot. And I'm receiving teaching and that's great, but then I'm practicing that teaching to where then it just simply becomes action in my life. And when they look at the Pharisees and Sadducees, Jesus is saying what they're teaching you, not only about how they think to inherit eternal life, which he's going to condemn in a little bit, is way off. But what they're teaching you about me, their questioning of me, Jesus says, it's off. And I'm going to tell you something way different. I'm going to affirm I am who you think that I am, but you're going to hear some really devastating and difficult news about me. And you need to grasp this. Teaching for us is incredibly important. Wrong teaching leads to these three things. They come from uh, John Mark, Comer. I'm borrowing them from him. But we talked about this way back in Genesis where Satan comes in, and he uses this analogy from Dallas Willard. But he comes in not with a bat to convince Adam and Eve to sin. He doesn't come in with a big gun or a sword and say, betray God, eat of the fruit. He plants what? A deceptive idea into their minds. If God really loved you, if God really cared for you, he wouldn't withhold this knowledge from you. He's instructing them. This deceptive idea, what happens when it's acted upon? It becomes this behavior that is then destructive in our lives, and then it tends to be normalized within society, justified, or minimized in our lives. So a deceptive idea, a deceptive teaching gets implanted in your head. It leads to a destructive behavior that then becomes normalized, maybe not even in your own life, but in the life of the world around us. And we live in a world where we're seeing that take place over and over and over again. Things that were once condemned are now widely accepted. Things that were widely accepted are now condemned. It's intriguing, isn't it? Teaching. Heed my instruction. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, what I'm teaching you is important. Why we spend time in the word of God is important. Now he's going to force an issue with the disciples. Verse 13, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, oh my goodness, just, I'm going to preface this. If you want to talk about this section of scripture, hit me up for coffee. All right, it's going to be a lot of fun. Is Peter the Pope? 
What's going on in Caesarea Philippi? What about the gates of hell? What's going to prevail? What's not going to prevail? I cannot spend the time on that. This is a deep well that we can continue to draw from over and over again. We're going to just on the surface, but hear this. He asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? They said, some say John the Baptist. He's come back from the dead, right? Remember that story? Then it says, others say Elijah, because you're doing miracles like him. Others, Jeremiah, or that, or the prophet. He said to them, who do you say that I am? Peter responded, you are the Christos, the Christ, or the Mashiach, the Messiah. And he continues on in this, and he says, He said to him, but who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven. I tell you, you are Peter. You are Peter, Petros, the rock. And on this, and he uses another word for rock, right? I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. You can thank me later. I took all this out of my notes. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Um, This Friday, I came down here with my three little kids. We walked down and and got coffee. My wife had taken my oldest on a a date. They went to the grocery store. That's how you do dates, right, with four kids. So you pick one, and they go shopping with mom for food, and it's awesome, and they think they've won the lottery. So I took my kids. We get a donut, and we're coming down here wreaking havoc on everything, and I had to do a few things for the church. And I hear just like out the back of my, my ears, my daughter goes, my littlest, Addie Mae, she's five, and she goes, this is God's church, Benny. God built everything. <laughs> and I'm like, and he kind of like looked at her and he's like, I don't, I don't know about that. You know, like, did he put the stones up there? And, and so they're having this conversation. And as I'm thinking about this concept and this idea of what I was teaching on this weekend, she said something that struck a chord with me. God built this church, his church. And he wants to accomplish what he will accomplish, and he'll do it how he wants to do it. And we are really good in the church world at getting gimmicky and fatty and like thinking, oh man, how can we make this cool and intriguing and awesome and this great experience? And I just want to say something. If that's the direction you want to head, I got lots of churches I'll send you, and they're great churches. But I'll tell you what. We want to be a church that just kind of takes a step back and says, God, how do you want to build redeemers? What do you want to do here in this church? How are you growing and maturing us as a body of Christ? How awesome was last week as you just heard the voices rising of people praying with one another? That might not be your thing, but that's a Jesus kind of thing. And that's the kind of things we want to see God doing, that we're priests one to another, that we care for each other. Let it get into our mindset that God is going to build his church in the way that he sees fit. And we're simply saying, Lord, what do you want to do in this place? And he gives this promise. And in giving this promise and speaking to his disciples, they made this incredible confession. You are the Christ. 
the most important question you can be asked is who do you think Jesus is? And your response to that is actually going to dictate the rest of your life. Here and now in his kingdom as participants in it, stretching on into the age to come. When you meet Jesus, when you acknowledge Jesus, this is not just some kind of cheap sinner's prayer that Peter says. Come to the front of the room, it's magical, and chant these words and you'll be in heaven with us. Gosh, isn't that evangelical? Like that is just exactly what the church has proposed to each and every person of here's how you get into heaven. But Peter makes this confession and then Jesus is going to look at him and he goes, guys, life's going to suck and it's going to be really hard, but I'm going to be with you and I'm going to do it before you because I'm going to do it before you and I'm going to rise. You have that exact same hope. This is what he builds his church on, who he is, who he is. Peter picks up on this wordplay later on and talks about it in 1 Peter. We spent extensive time in that when we went through it. You can go back and listen to it. Peter's role, this confession, is also an acknowledgement of Jesus breaking from the religious system. He's going to go turn the tables over soon. The veil's going to be rent. It's going to be torn in half. And he's establishing the church and doing something new. This drama is happening right before our eyes. Craig Keener on this says, Jesus has not simply assigned this role arbitrarily to Peter. However, Peter is the rock because he is the one who confessed Jesus as the Christ in this context. He's looking at Peter and he's saying, I'm going to work and move through what this confession is and through you, Peter. So what does this lead us to? This leads us to how this gets into your life. Okay, 10 minutes and here we go. Verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed on the third day, be raised. Peter took him aside. This was not a good idea. <laughs> Jesus, I'm going to tell you how this is going to go down. <laughs> Maybe you've done that before. Like, you lived a Luke Combs song, trucks break down, football teams lose, your stuff gets stolen. Two of those three happened to me in a seven-day period, all right? We lived this song this week. It's cool. It's no big deal. Jesus, you're not going to suffer. What are, you, what are you talking about? That's not the Messiah's role. That's not what you came here to accomplish. We're going to Jerusalem. You're riding in. We're going to assume the throne. We're going to take power. We're going to institute God's rule and reign, not only over Jerusalem, but the rest of the world. We're going to be on your right. We're going to be on your left. We're your guys. This is Peter's mindset. This is a Jewish mindset. Their Messiah was not one of weakness, one that would give himself over to death, that was unfathomable. Even though there was these tidbits in Isaiah talking about the suffering of this Messiah, they would dismiss that. Maybe find ways to explain it away. So Peter, from a young kid, growing up, thinking, how could this be, Jesus? He pulls him aside and he rebukes him. This is the same kind of language that when Jesus rebukes the demon coming up, in Matthew 17, 
This is not like, hmm, Jesus, I don't think this is right. I'm questioning what you're doing. This is, you're wrong, Jesus. No. And then what does Jesus do? Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. What is he rebuking? This is why Matthew is a genius in how he ties us all together. Get behind me, Satan. He's rebuking the same thought process that was used in Matthew chapter 4. You want the kingdom of the world? I'll give it to you without the cross. I'll give it to you without suffering, Satan said. Why don't you just go ahead and use your own, once again, authority, your own way? You see how Matthew is tying this together from the Pharisees and Sadducees and what they're tempting him with. And now Peter is tempting him. One in his inner circle is tempting him with the exact same mentality. You can get around the cross. You don't have to suffer, Jesus. There's a different way. And how much of a temptation was this for Jesus? Yes, he is fully God, but he is fully human. So much so that in the garden, he's sweating big blood drops. And he's saying, Father, if at all possible, take this cup from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Do you understand what is happening here? It's the same literary theme. Let's go around God and take what is ours. This is Adam and Eve. This is Abraham. This is David. This is over and over again until we get to Jesus. And we are desperately looking for a hero, a savior that would stand face to face with these tests and would not fail. And this is Jesus. And he says to Peter, this way of thinking, Peter, is wrong. Get behind me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, why is this all important? Jesus finishes off with what will probably be what you take home with you this morning. Then Jesus told his disciples, if any would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If you want to be somebody, become a nobody. This is so counterintuitive, it's contrast to everything you're taught from a young child growing up. If you want to be somebody, then go out and be somebody. Make a name for yourself. Become famous. Become important. Get on TikTok. I tried it for a hot second. It doesn't work, right? (laughs) Um, I'm only 37 and I'm already TikToked out. It's just not who I am, okay? So there's the deal. If you want to be somebody, Jesus says this, for whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, yet he forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of the Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are, there are some standing here we're going to get into this next week, who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. This would have been absolutely astounding for Peter and the gang who looked at Jesus and said, Lord, no, no, no. The way up is up, not down. 
This is how we accomplish success. This is how you bring in redemption. And Jesus says, look, if you want to get anywhere in this world, you're going to have to die. Die to self. This comes from Tim Keller. He's quoting William Van Stone, who's an Anglican theologian. And Van Stone says, in it, he has an interesting chapter called the phenomenology of love. He says this, no matter what their expense, all human beings, even people who from childhood were deprived of love, know the difference between false and true love, fake and authentic love. The difference is in fake love or false love, your aim is to use the other person to fulfill your happiness. So your affection and love is conditional. You do it only as long as the person is affirming you and meeting your needs. It's non-vulnerable, the kind that holds back so you can cut your losses if necessary. The aim is to use the person to fulfill your happiness, and therefore love is conditional and non-vulnerable. Just a little bit more. But in true love, your aim is to spend yourself, use yourself for the happiness of others. If you want to find your life, you must lose it. So he goes on, because your greatest joy is that person's joy. That's true love. Therefore, your affection is unconditional. You give it regardless of whether that person is meeting your needs or not. It's radically vulnerable. You spend everything. You give it all away. You hold nothing back. This is what Jesus came to do. No, his throne was not going to look like the wooden throne that Caesar or Pilate sat upon. It was a wooden cross. And he's saying, I am giving myself for you to demonstrate my love for you. And then I'm inviting you into the same kind of life. This is the call of discipleship to follow him no matter the cost. You see, the essence of Christian immaturity, which is all around us today, is Jesus suffered so I wouldn't have to. Anybody ever heard that gospel preached? Gosh, I have. Jesus suffered so you wouldn't have pain. Jesus suffered so you wouldn't go through hardship. Jesus suffered so you'd be wealthy, that you would have all that you need. No, that is the essence of immaturity when it comes to the idea of who Jesus is. Jesus went to the cross so I would never have to. This was Peter's mentality. Not so, Lord, you're not going to do that. That's not what this is about. The essence of Christian maturity is realizing because Jesus suffered, he stood in our place when I suffered, when I suffer, and now has meaning and purpose in my life. Your suffering, your pain, your loss, it's not meaningless. And you can take that one step further as a disciple of Jesus, and you can say, therefore, I will willingly go out of my way for somebody else, even if it costs me in this life. That's what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. It's very chronological. Yes, it's a confession and an admission that Jesus, not you, is Lord. That Jesus and not some other lowercase gods, Elohims, they're not Lord. He's Lord. He's God. But it gets into your life and it changes everything about the way you live. It causes you to look around this room Say, how can I put them first, love them, care for them? And it radically changes us. That is what Jesus is leading us into. Follow him? Yeah, 
Like, follow him. Read the scriptures. See how Jesus acted and commit yourself to walking in his ways. Let's pray.